You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, the podcast that celebrates the cultural connections between the UK and New York. I'm your host, British diplomat, Hannah Young, and every week I'll be talking to a British leader in the arts and culture sector, living and working here in New York. I explore their journey to the Big Apple, their interests and insights, and the cultural connections between the city and the UK. Xavier Salomon is the Deputy Director and Peter J. Sharp Chief Curator at the Frick Collection. A noted scholar of Paolo Veronese, he curated the monographic exhibition on the artist at the National Gallery in London in 2014. Previously, Salomon was curator in the Department of European Paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and before that, the Arturo and Holly Melosi Chief Curator at Dulwich Picture Gallery in London. At the Frick, Xavier has curated a large number of well-received exhibitions, including on Veronese, Cagnacci, Canova and Murillo. Salman received his PhD on the patronage of Cardinal Pietro Aldebrandini from the Courtauld Institute of Art. He has also published in a large number of publications, including the Apollo, the Burlington Magazine, Master Drawings and the Metropolitan Museum of Art Journal. He is a trustee and a member of the Projects Committee of Save Venice. And in 2018, Italy named Salomon Calvariere dell'Ordine della Stella d'Italia. Xavier, welcome to Brits and the Big Apple. I wonder if you could start by telling us uh, a bit about your career journey so far and, and how you came to be here at the Frick in New York. I was born and grew up in Rome, in Italy. But I spent most of my childhood dividing time between Rome and Tuscany and England and mostly West Sussex and a bit of London. Uh, my mom is English and um, I would go and visit my grandmother, my great grandparents, who were still alive when I was a child in Sussex, and my cousins. And, and a lot of my formation was really between Italy and the UK. I studied in Italy, but then when I was 18, I moved to London and uh, studied art history. Uh, as a kid, I was always interested in archaeology, in art, which, you know, it's not really difficult growing up in Rome. I was surrounded by it wherever I was. Uh, but I remember lots of formative visits to museums, to churches in Rome, various archaeological sites. Same, same with the UK. For me, the National Gallery in London was a very formative place growing up. And, um, and I moved to London for university, studied art history at the Courtauld Institute, and I was there for my BAMA PhD for many years. And then I came to America a number of times, um, never really thinking I would eventually move here. So it's a bit strange how it all happened. But I first came in 2000 as an intern, a summer intern at the Metropolitan Museum. And the, the Met offers these wonderful internships for young people, uh, you know, wanting to work out and see how museums uh, work and operate. So I did that. And I always thought that was going to be my one chance of sort of working in America for a little bit. And then later on in 2004, when I was doing my PhD, I applied for a fellowship at the Frick Collection. And again, thinking I had a very slim chance of getting it and that it would be fun to spend two years in New York City. And surprisingly for me, um, I, I got the fellowship and, and that was an incredibly formative time. So I spent two years here in New York, again, thinking that that was going to be it and that I was going to spend the rest of my life probably in London. Uh, I moved back to London, worked there, uh, first briefly at the National Gallery and then at Dulwich. And, um, and then I was called to New York. And so here I am almost 11 years later, 
still in New York. And clearly there's been a conscious or maybe subconscious draw to New York over the years. What What is it about this city that excites you and makes you want to work here? You know, it's a strange draw. Um, I was really the first person in my family ever to make it to New York. Uh, my family has always been very Europe-centric. Um, and it was never a particular known sort of dream to come here. Uh, I always dreamt of going to other places, really. But what attracted me was really the museum world of New York. I mean, places like, of course, the Metropolitan Museum, the Frick, but also the Morgan, the Guggenheim, MoMA. I mean, it's an extraordinary concentration of works of art, of museums, of museum um, staff, of, of curators and directors who were inspirational to me as a kid. I mean, starting art history as a teenager and then at university, you know, people like Philippe de Montebello, the previous director of the Metropolitan Museum, were always a sort of distant hero and little would I imagine that I would get to know him and I know him quite well so New York had that pull for me and that was the attraction uh, of the city which in fact was why I came those first two times first to the Met and then to the Frick. And tell us a bit more about the Frick and and um, perhaps a little bit about its history um, for, for listeners who may not necessarily have been to visit before. Yeah as the as the name sort of clearly states the Frick is a collection, it's the Frick collection. And it is the collection initiated by uh, a, a Robert Barron in the late, eight, late 19th, early 20th century, a man called Henry Clay Frick, who made his fortune through uh, steel and coke, uh, first in Pittsburgh and then moved to New York in uh, 1905. And he built a mansion uh, around the time of the First World War in the 19 teens, he moved into the house in 1914 and moved this collection there. And this is an extraordinary collection of European art from the 13th century, our earliest pieces dated around 1280, uh, all the way to the late 19th century, early 20th century. And this collection was displayed in the house. And when he died in 1919, he left the house as a public institution, as a museum uh, for the public. And the museum has been uh, open to the public from 19. 1935 uh, continuously all the way to now and the collection has grown and expanded over the years and and uh, changed to some degree uh, in the years and you've got quite a large number of English art in the collection as well is absolutely that right? uh, the the it's surprising to people to find out that in the late 19th early 20th century the preferred works uh, by American collectors were British portraits mm. uh, so so we have a very rich collection of, of you know, 18th century portraiture, uh, Hogarth, Gainsborough, Reynolds, Romney, uh, but also wonderful landscapes, Turner and Constable, uh, among, among others. Um, and the fact is that most of the collection at the Frick, even the Italian, Spanish and French works all come from the UK. I would guess that about 90% of our collection was in the UK when Frick bought it. And mm -hmm. the time, the sort of 19 teens, is when all the British country houses were selling works of art. Mm -hmm. So all of our Italian and French and Spanish pictures also come from uh, English country houses. Rembrandt's, Vermeer's, many of those works um, come from the UK. It's really interesting. Um, and he clearly had an eye for good art and spotted an opportunity to build up a collection, as, as you say, as people were trying to sell off their paintings. Absolutely. I mean, he had an eye and he had money, which, of yeah. course, were both very important things yeah. to have at the time. So he bought really the top of the market at the time. 
So we're a very small museum, but at the same time, we have three Vermeers, we have three Rembrandts, uh, we have incredible works of art. We have arguably what is the most important Italian picture in the in the US, which is Bellini's Saint Francis in the Desert. So uh, there are there are real masterpieces in the collection, and everything is of extraordinary quality. Mm. And I was going to ask you a little bit about the um, your audience, and it's quite challenging to you know, very traditional paintings. And I just wonder if you could say a little bit about what you're doing to sort of create an appeal for younger people who may not necessarily be scholars of art, but who are nevertheless interested in understanding a bit more about European paintings, or how do you get a more diverse audience through the door of the, the collection? It is a very important thing for us, uh, and for me particularly, uh, I mean individually. Uh, the, the collection, when it was created as a museum in 1919, Frick left in his will the desire that the collection would be for all persons whomsoever. And in 1919, that means a lot. I mean, that really means it, this is a collection for everyone. We are not an encyclopedic museum. So encyclopedic museums like the Metropolitan Museum or the, I don't know, the Art Institute in Chicago or LACMA in Los Angeles have somewhat an easier time because they're designed to represent every culture in the world and they can attract many different audiences who are interested in many different things. Our collection is Europe-centric. Um, we only have really one work by an American artist. It's, it's a Gilbert Stewart portrait of George Washington, something that Frick probably bought as a patriotic, uh, for patriotic reasons. Um, and we have Whistler, who of course is an American artist, but lived all of his life between London and Paris. So again, mostly European. Um, so what, what do we do with that? You know, the collection is not going to change uh, by the rules of, of our museum. We only collect within the fields that Frick was interested in. So as I say, 13th to early 20th century European art. But I think you can teach a lot with this material. You can inspire people through this material. And you can also talk very uh, directly about the absences. And that's something we've been doing uh, both our curatorial and our education department has been working very hard on that for many years. And we talk about what is represented in a museum and what isn't. I think great works of art, no matter where they're produced or who they're produced by or when they're produced, they can inspire people. And we can all be inspired by a great European painting as much as a great contemporary piece or a wonderful piece of African sculpture or, you know, a, a, an Indian miniature. So, um, you know, the fact that our collection is somewhat limited in terms of geography and chronology doesn't mean that we're limited in terms of how we can inspire people. So we've been working on a number of projects to do that, many of which I'm, I'm very proud of. Uh, over the last six, seven years, we've been working, for example, with a film school in the Bronx, uh, the Ghetto Film School, and we've been bringing students from the school to the museum, uh, talking with them about how works of art can it inspire you about storytelling and and in some ways um, help you when you're thinking about creating a movie. And so these students have been creating short movies every year, uh, entirely written, produced and, and, and done by them. Uh, more recently, we've been focusing again on these ideas of absences. Uh, so, you know, all of our portraiture, we were talking about British portraits, but also our, our Dutch portraits or any portraits we have uh, invariably represent white people. So we're working now on a future project uh, with uh, an African-American artist to, uh, to, to display works uh, by this artist in conjunction with, uh, with our British portraits. But more recently and more importantly, we've been working on another project called Living Histories, 
uh, all of our portraits, when they're pendant portraits, they represent husbands and wives, men and women. And of course, these come from a time where that was the only accepted way of seeing a couple. And fortunately, I think, you know, rightly so, we live in a world where that's not the case anymore. And the definition of a couple, a family, a relationship has shifted quite dramatically, uh, I would argue for the better, and we're very supportive of that. I think it's important that museums like ours, but any museum makes very strong stances about the fact that we don't stand for racism, we don't stand for any form of discrimination towards anyone. And that I think has to be made very, very clear. So um, this is a moment where we decided to invite four artists, uh, contemporary artists who live and work in New York, but come from a very diverse background. Uh, one is from Pakistan, one is from Tennessee, one is from Nigeria, one is from Israel. They all chose New York as their home base and they work in New York. They work in a figurative, style in painting, which is directly inspired by old masters, European old masters. So we've invited them to create works that have been inserted in the collection. All of these artists identify as either queer or as dealing in queer subjects. So this is a moment for us to make people pause and understand that, again, there is a glaring absence in our collection. And you know we're not necessarily filling that absence, but we are making people aware of that. and trying to also explain to people that a collection by effectively dead white painters or artists can still be a source of inspiration to us today. That's really inspiring. And as you say, it's, it's, it's so important to tell the stories behind the people in the artwork, but also to talk about what's not there. And um, it's, it's really impressive to hear that even with a fairly fixed collection you know you can still bring relevance and you can bring new artists to you know to to be able to talk about the presence and the absence I think it's important for all of us in the museum world especially you know we deal with the past and there is so much about the past that we obviously don't like and that we wish had gone a different way uh, we can't rewrite history but we can learn from history we can learn from our mistakes as as a species as human beings and and I think we need to confront those things head on you know were most people in the past racist yes I mean they still are today how can we make a better future and a better present for us uh, I think we need to confront those things and I think museums shouldn't be shy about facing their demons let's say um, you know were all these artists wonderful people well we don't really know but the works of art can teach us something for better for worse and I think we need to use the past to to shape the present and the future. Mm. Have you ever had a moment where um, somebody has come in and said, oh, that, that painting's really familiar. I think that was in one of our family photos, you know, from way back when. Have you ever had those connections that have come up? There have been some. Um, of course, there are, you know, many descendants of people who owned pictures that are now at the Frick. Uh, there are many country houses I've visited in the UK where things we have now at the Frick originally came from. Uh, sometimes the original frames of some of these pictures are still in those houses with copies in their place. I remember once a very fun visit in Yorkshire to a family house to see two paintings that Frick had, well, the frames of these two paintings that Frick had bought. They had the copies and they actually didn't know there were copies. They thought they were the originals. So I had to break the news oh. that unfortunately the originals left with the great grandparents. Uh, but it's, it's, fun to make these connections and because so much of the collection comes from the, comes from the UK a lot of these connections were really 
with people who still live in the UK and, and may still have remnants of their ancestors' collections mm. there. Mm. You've uh, studied and worked at some of the finest institutions in the UK and the US. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, maybe some of the similarities or differences between curating a collection in the UK versus the US. It's surprisingly different. And I think, unfortunately, the main difference is a difference of resources. Uh, you know, the staff of museums, both in the US and the UK, is, is extraordinary. As I said, the National Gallery in London, for me, was a very formative institution. I studied in London in the 1990s when the National Gallery was packed with brilliant curators. You know, Dylan Gordon, Nicholas Penny, Lorne Campbell, Carol Platzotta. They were some of my sort of heroes, and they still are today. People who studied art history, looked at collections in a number of really interesting ways. Of course, this was under the directorship of Neil McGregor, who then went on to the British Museum and did wonders there as well. Um, so I loved particularly working with my colleagues in the, in the UK. I, I love doing so in the US as well. The difference between the museums is really a difference of resources. And unfortunately in the UK, the resources are much more limited, which means that as a curator, you are limited in what you can achieve. Uh, I worked for five years at Dulwich Picture Gallery, which was a small museum in, in London. Uh, the resources there were very, very limited and we had to struggle um, every day with what we were doing. I remember my successor, after a week in the job called me up and said, you never told me this is extreme curatorship. And, <laughs> and in a way it was because I remember painting the galleries myself once and changing oh. the light bulbs and packing a Rembrandt myself and doing those sort of things because the resources weren't there. Here in the US, museums are run in a very different way. So you have those resources, which means that a lot of people, myself included, in a way emigrated from the UK to the US in search of museums in which they can do their job in a better way. Uh, that I think is the main, it's one of the main differences. I think also in the in the US, particularly in New York, there is a different appreciation, appreciation of, um, of curators and the curator's job. Uh, a very simple difference is the fact that when a review of an exhibition comes out in the US, in the New York Times or any other newspaper, the curators are always named. In the UK, that's very rare. Um, and it's almost as if exhibitions in the UK happened, you know, almost by magic. They're just, you know, journalists talk about the, the, the artist or what the exhibition does, but they don't actually talk about who put it together and usually spend four or five years working on it. Um, and that, you know, is a difference when you're working in that every day. Uh, I know for a fact that, you know, many colleagues in the UK are, are much more frustrated than my colleagues here in the US in terms of what they can do and, and how they do it. So unfortunately, that is a reality which which makes working in the US uh, very different from working in London or anywhere else in the mm. UK. That's a really interesting comment about the status and the prominence of a curator in the US versus the UK. And I think it has, on the long run, uh, I don't want to sound too critical, but it has an impact on issues also of diversity. Uh, let's talk, for example, about salaries. You know, salaries for a curator in the US are much higher. You know, New York is not a cheap city to live in, but the salary is a reasonable one. In the UK, because there is an old tradition that most of these salaries in national institutions are linked to a sort of civil servant system, the salaries are incredibly low. You live in one of the most expensive cities in the Western world, not many people can do it. Therefore, the options to a more diverse audience are very limited. You can only do it if you have some kind of financial backing and you can afford it. 
And, you know, frankly, living in London for many years, being a curator there was, was tough. It's, it's a choice that you make because that is somebody's passion, somebody's interest, but it becomes difficult to maintain on the long run. Um, you know, you think a full curator in a national institution shouldn't be sharing rooms with flatmates still because they can't afford something else. Hmm. And I think an, an, until the UK really works that out and understands that by making some of those salaries higher, you actually open it up as a possibility to people who don't have a financial background that can support them, then that I think will, will change the game. What kind of skills do you need to be a good curator? That's a very good question. And there are two things. Uh, one is the mythical I. I mean, it's a very <laughs> difficult thing to describe, but the idea of being visually literate, let's say, uh, being interested in things visually um, and, and thinking of things that way. So you need to have a real interest in objects, in how they look, why they look that way, uh, why were they created, why they look the way they look. Uh, and then you need curiosity. And I think that is the one thing I always look in, in colleagues and, 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 and people I work with. It's, it's this importance of, of being curious about everything around you, all the objects around you. And that could be you know, anything that was created two days ago to anything that was made in prehistory. Um, and the curiosity then pushes you to do research, to learn more about those objects. And I would say the third important thing also is uh, skills in communication, because one of the problem with the curatorial world is that most people do that research and then direct that research towards, you know, three or four other colleagues. We, we have to share that research and that information with as broad a public as, pos as possible. And therefore, communicating becomes very, very important. Mm. So you're actually part historian, part uh, communicator. I mean, there are lots of different mm. hats, actually, that you're juggling all at the same time. Absolutely. Mm. Part interior decorator, part interior manager, decorator. part, you know, lots of the painter. Yeah, painter exactly. Sometimes. <laughs> uh, and, and, and actually, you brought some of those skills to bear through your amazing pandemic initiative around cocktails with the curator. Uh, and I was going to ask you about the impact that the pandemic has had more broadly uh, on the institution, but also what you did to bridge the gap for people. You know, the pandemic, it, it's obvious to say, but has had an impact on all of us. And I think, you know, we, we still don't fully understand the impact of the pandemic on the long run. We'll, we'll live through it and we'll understand as we go along. The great thing about human beings is that we all adapt and we change and we, we you know, we survive in a way or another. Um, so when the pandemic started, I still remember that confusion of those first, you know, those first few days, weeks in March 2020, when everyone was wondering, you know, is this going to be a question of a few weeks or a few months? And when people started saying this may be years, everyone thought, you know, this can't be the case. But, you know, here we are, year and a half later. Um, so my main concern was how can we have the museum out there uh, being relevant to people, being being a point of reference for people. And to me, uh, again, knowing the history of museums, especially in the UK, my mind went immediately back to Second World War and the London Blitz. And again, the National Gallery. I said the National Gallery was very formative for me. Obviously, I wasn't around at the time of the Second World War, but I, I read a lot about it. And, and what the National Gallery did at the time when the whole collection was evacuated to Wales for security reasons, uh, they kept one painting in the National Gallery every month. There was this program of a painting a month and people during the Blitz could go to the National Gallery for free and see one great work by Rembrandt, by Gainsborough, by, you know, by a great artist. And they would change that work every month. They, of course, put that work at risk 
but they decided, understandably and rightly so, that that risk was worth taking. They also had an amazing concert series that was uh, run by this extraordinary woman who, who, who played the piano and they had lunchtime concerts. And I always thought, you know, this extraordinary thing of people, you know, in the middle of the bombing of London, which, you know, frankly, I don't want to make any comparisons of what's better or worse, but I would guess it's much worse than the pandemic. Um, and yet they were inspired by music, by art in a museum. So my first question, March 2020, was, you know, how do we do this? Um, how can we reach people in their homes? Everyone is scared, is frightened, is, is you know, uncertain about what the future holds. Um, so I thought, you know, a weekly talk about a work of art, um, talking a little bit about how that work of art has significance, some sort of significance today, or how that work can help us today uh, through storytelling of, you know, stories about that work. And then I thought, you know, and this was in discussions with colleagues, with uh, another curator at the Frick, Amy Ng, and with our communications department, I thought, you know, what do people crave right now? They crave, you know, being with people, going out on a Friday evening, having a drink. So I thought, let's have a cocktail and let's do it from home. These were very basic programs done on Zoom from home, self-recorded, self-researched. And, you know, we started doing it without really knowing where we would go. Uh, it lasted 65 weeks every week. Uh, we reached short of a couple of million people worldwide, which was a huge surprise to all of us. Um, and what it did is it really got into people's homes at a specific time every day. And it sort of not only distracted people from the awfulness of what was happening, but it also inspired them in a number of ways. Uh, I don't think art is just diversive to you know to feel happy when you're feeling sad it can do that of course but it's also about raising important issues making you think about things uh while while we were recording cocktails with the curator with my colleagues uh we also run within the museum a book group i was very concerned about the fact that you know all of my colleagues in the curatorial department were at home again not knowing what to do many people went home to their parents there was a huge geographical distance people went home to california to florida to vermont to to the netherlands um, so we created a book group and we read the whole of Moby Dick uh, during the pandemic, which we thought was a, was a great way to, to talk about these issues. Who are we? Where are we going? What are the obstacles in life? What are our goals? And it became an incredibly moving experience. And I love the discussions through that book, book club. And I think the combination of cocktails, you know, Moby Dick during the pandemic, and of course, we can talk about that too, but the move of the museum, which was happening at mm. the same time was for me an incredibly rich and challenging time mm. it's a winning combination a bit of alcohol and a formative talk about a lovely piece of art so Absolutely. i can see but i guess it also as as you were alluding to expanded the reach of the frick as well which i can imagine has probably only had a positive impact on your audience and people's levels of interest in the collection Absolutely. And that, that I think is going to be a big question for the future, you know, reaching people online. Um, you know, we got a lot of responses from people who had never been to the Frick, but, you know, of course, had never been to New York or to the United States. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the Frick was in their home. Uh, we never really thought that we had that potential through, uh, through the Internet, through, through online programming. So the big challenge now and question for the future is how can we balance in person and online? Because, of course, in person is still very, very important, and I don't think anything substitutes that. But we can still make the museum reach an audience as far as South Africa, Australia, uh, areas of South America. I mean, the response was incredible about, you know, the geographical location of people who are following this program. 
and tell us about the move. So the, the, the move of the collection coincided with the pandemic, and that was actually a, an absolute coincidence, which made certain things easier, certain things more difficult. Uh, the house where the Frick uh, usually is, is, is house lives um, is now more than 100 years old. And we had to work on the house in terms of renovating the spaces and enhancing some of the uh, some of the, the building, uh, you know, of course, this is a building that was built in 1914 that had, you know, was never designed with the idea of, you know, 300,000 visitors a year. Um, it was never designed with disabled access and a number of other things that we feel very strongly should be there. So uh, the plan has been to 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 close the museum, close the historic campus of the museum. Uh, work on it for a few years. And in the meantime, the question was, again, where can we make the collection available? We didn't want to just close the museum for a few years and then reopen. So we were very lucky to uh, find a way to collaborate with two other great institutions in the city, the Metropolitan Museum and the Whitney Museum of American Art. And we have now rented the so-called Breuer Building, which was built in 1966 for the Whitney, and then was most recently uh, uh, rented to the uh, to the Metropolitan Museum. And so we've established our headquarters there now for the next few years, and we have the entire collection and our offices there. So the move took place over 2020 into the early months of 21. And, you know, it's an extraordinary opportunity for me as a curator to, to witness this time and to be involved with this. The possibility of moving your entire museum, reinterpreting it, and then eventually going back to where you came from and enhancing that is absolutely extraordinary. It's one of the, the things that really drew me to the Frick uh, to begin with when I first started there. Uh, this, this program was, this, this plan was in, in place already then. And, um, and so we did it. it. It took longer than expected. It was more difficult than expected, of course, because of the pandemic. But now we have this brutalist building with our collection, which is a very different experience. Uh, I always tell to friends in London, imagine the Wallace collection or, or the Royal collection, you know, installed at the Barbican or the Hayward Gallery. That is effectively what we did. It's a temporary uh, solution, uh, as I say, will last a few years. But in the meantime, we can show the collection in a very different way. We can install contemporary artworks in a more meaningful way, in an easier way than we could do at the house. And it's given us a lot of opportunities and a lot of ways to reach a new and diverse audience. Sounds like a really exciting phase. And what else have you got coming down the track in terms of upcoming exhibitions? Or you alluded to a couple of projects that you have in the pipeline earlier. So we're still working on the Living Histories uh, project is ongoing that will last for the whole of this year. We have two works up at the moment uh, by Daron Langberg and Salman Tor. Uh, two more will be on view in the spring. So that's something to look forward to. Um, we're working with another contemporary artist, uh, Giuseppe Pinone in Italy, who produced a series of uh, works in the Sèvres manufactory in France. We have a great collection of porcelain, historic French porcelain, and so this um, speaks to that collection, and we're going to show that in the spring. But of course, you know, a lot of our plans at the moment are to do with uh, the reinstallation of the house. It took three years in planning for the Breuer building to be transformed into Frick Madison, as we call it today. Uh, it will take another three years uh, more or less uh, to, to reinstall everything. So we started already working on those plans. Uh, we have other things going on, publications, for example, I'm very excited about. We started with our editor-in-chief, a series of books that are called Frick Diptychs, 
where one of us curators writes about a great work of ours at the Frick, and then we invite someone else in the creative art world to respond to that work with a text, with a work of art, with music, poem, whatever they want. Uh, the first one I did was on Holbein's Thomas More with Hilary Mantel, which is very exciting. Uh, and we've done a number of them. We've done six. The seventh is coming out in the next few weeks, and it is on a Fragonard Room, one of the great masterpieces of French art at the Frick. But again, I've been collaborating on that with uh, a great British novelist, Alan Hollinghurst. And so Alan has written a very, very beautiful piece uh, for this book, and I look forward to it coming out. Gosh, that sounds really exciting. Some really interesting collaborations coming down the track. Xavier Salmon, thank you so much for coming on Brits in the Big Apple. You're listening to Brits in the Big Apple, brought to you by the British Consulate in New York. If you'd like to hear more about the work of the British Consulate, please follow us on Twitter or Instagram at UK in New York. Thank you for listening.